Welcome to another episode of Wheel Adventures. This is episode seven, where we interviewed a number of people when we were at the Pacific Northwest Overland Expo, people that have been traveling around the world by two-wheel or four-wheel for a number of months or years. They're authors. They have books that they were selling at their own booth, or they were giving presentations at the one of many, many seminars. So I hope you enjoy. So it's Sunday morning at the Pacific Northwest Overland Expo here in Redmond, Oregon. And I'm sitting with the person who it could be arguably said is has a large responsibility for the massive growth of overlanding in general. And uh, his name is Scott Brady, and he publishes Overland Journal, which has been around for how long has it been now? Over 15 years, yeah. 15 years, and uh, did Expedition Portal, the, uh, the your website, come out before? Um, the the journal or what, what came first chicken or the egg yeah the expedition portal came first uh, actually I had a blog before that even called expeditions West and then expedition portal came out in 2005 yeah yeah so how did this begin for you like how the the, the love of exploring back roads and, and driving dirt roads around the world and North America and all the places you've been, like Expedition 7. Uh, how did it start for you? Like, where did it begin in your life? I would say that my, my love for the outdoors, I'd credit my, my dad and grandfather for that. They were both avid fishermen, hunters, uh, and I grew up in Southern California. I grew up in Los Angeles where there isn't a lot of the outdoors available to you. But my dad would go to the effort of getting me out. Um, so I was in the scouts and I, we would go camping frequently and hunting frequently. So that really showed me how much I enjoyed the outdoors and it gave me some basic skills. And then I joined the Air Force and was stationed in Mountain Home, Idaho, which is literally the middle of nowhere. So, um, that exposed me to you know, almost daily activities outdoors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you take a um, kind of a broad approach that I really appreciate to overlanding, all the way from human-powered, you know, bikepacking, bicycle touring. There's uh, there's some uh, categories on Expedition Portal that yeah. that accommodate you know that sort of travel, as well as two-wheel motorcycle travel, and you've done a lot of trips, adventure touring, uh, overlanding by motorcycle, as well as four-wheel drive. Um, what's what's your personal preference, and why? Well, I, I think that everyone that, that does four-wheel drive overlanding would benefit from, if they don't know how to ride a motorcycle, then do some bikepacking, borrow a bike, and go camping for a long weekend. Uh, because of what, what it does is it shows you how little you actually need to go see the world. And I believe that that's one of the greatest limitations is that many new overlanders are, are fairly convinced that they need to have all of this expensive equipment to go see the world. But there are people who have circumnavigated the planet on a Vespa. 
and there are people who have walked around the world as well. So it's really about making a decision what is most important. If it's most important to go see the world, then do it um, as soon as possible, as light as possible, and as cheap as possible. And if you can accomplish those goals, then you'll actually see the world. Uh, whereas if you wait for the perfect truck or you wait for the perfect time, most people never go. So I really believe that for me, the motorcycle travel is the most purest form of travel for me personally. Uh, because when it's hot, I'm hot. When you drive by the taco stand in Mexico, you smell the food. Um, you're a lot more vulnerable and oftentimes I'm traveling alone. So the locals are gonna be a lot more inclined to talk to you. You're not as intimidating as you would be in a large vehicle. Um, you know, you, you flip up the, the helmet and they can see your smile and your face and they can interact with you. And then next thing you know, the kids are climbing all over the bike and you're having a really special interaction that oftentimes is missing in a vehicle. So I think that's why I like the, like the motorcycle. That's one of the things that I really have appreciated about your approach, not only in the magazine, but what you talk about in the podcast is that essentially there's a there's like this almost like a spectrum there's on the one scale there's people that are intrigued by the equipment that's kind of the the expression of materialism that's so rampant in our culture and on the other hand there's the pure expression of just getting out there i don't care what i'm on or what i'm using i'm going to take what i have and get out there and our first uh first exposure uh, my ex-wife and i who's since passed on uh, she and I in 19, I've always been intrigued by gravel roads. I just want to say that yeah. first. The idea of it. remote dirt, it's like taking a step back, almost like a time machine. You know, it's like, oh, this is what it was like when the wagons were coming through here. I love double track because it yeah, just is sure. like, wow, this, this could be wagon tracks, you know. And in 1980, we found a six-year-old Suzuki LJ20. Awesome. In brand new condition, awesome. with the little 200, 360cc two-stroke engine, and we put our backpacking gear in that because there's not a lot of room in that no, tiny not. Suzuki. And we live, we were living in Boulder, Colorado, and we drove up into uh, Wyoming into the Vitaboos. So that started with just a minimal approach, you know, and um, and then I, I started uh, bike packing. Uh, what was it's interesting how terms you know yeah. can define something and that's one of the things that uh, we could talk for a lot longer than you have time for but I think it's really interesting how once the term overland uh, came into the identity the ability to identify yeah. what it is sure. like with bike packing yeah. and even back in the early days when I started riding mountain bikes with the guys who started mountain biking you yeah. know Gary Fisher Originally, back in 78, 79, when I was riding with those guys, they weren't called mountain bikes. They were, right. we, we didn't know what the hell to call them. We called right. them clunkers because right. they were really heavy, right? Sure. And then when mountain bike became a term, it became something to, uh, a way to identify it and have a personal identity. I'm a mountain biker. I'm an overlander. Um, I remember on one of the trips that my ex-wife and I did with, uh, with the Suzuki, we we had moved to a samurai by that point. We bought a new Good samurai, choice. Good choice. and we were exploring. We did a long trip around um, Wyoming. We went up into the Red Desert, and we were expressing how 
how different this is. You know, so many four-wheel drivers at that point were into the rock crawling mentality. Mm -hmm. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's just a different, it's a, it's a different approach, as you know, you know. It's, rock crawling is sport. Yeah. And overlanding, over, overlanding is travel. So they're, yes. they're two very different things. I yeah. think it's good for all overlanders to know how to rock crawl. Oh, absolutely. Because <clears throat> you never a, know what you're going to run into. Yeah, right? it's, it's a skill that you can develop, and it's really fun to do as well. Yeah. Uh, but it's just important to know that, there's, that they're not even remotely the same. Off-roading is recreational sport by vehicle and overlanding is a form of travel and yeah it's the best way kind of like trials it. riding on a motorcycle yeah. versus uh having a big bmw yeah, um but uh um that one of the things that caught my attention uh we we did an overland build on a hummer h3 that i've mm -hmm. talked about in uh, one of our episodes that uh, we no longer have because we moved to a four-wheel drive sportsmobile a quigley nice you know the full setup and uh so we had this Hummer H3, and I listened to your episode a couple years ago about uh, gross vehicle weight. Yeah. And you see so many people kind of go overboard, like legally and structurally overboard yeah, sure. with the cool gear. And I get it. I love gear. You know, I, this podcast isn't all about gear. It's right. about the experience and gear because the tool is inherently important yeah. with how we travel uh, to a certain degree, but it's easy to go overboard, and I did that with the H3. I had this thing completely built out We've all done to it. the nines, We've and then I listened to your episode. I started totaling up all of the weights and uh, of what I had on the vehicle, and then I took it to a way station uh, up near Sun River on, on 97, and it's like, oh, crap, I'm like 500 pounds over my GVW at this and, point. And that's a truck that has a pretty good gross vehicle. Oh, it rate. does, yeah. <clears throat> and we've all done it. My, my first big build was on a Tacoma, and it was grossly overloaded. And, but what I have learned through time is that it is always a direct reflection of experience. So... The, the less experience someone has, the more gear that they will bring. Uh, the Maasai warrior in Africa has a wonderful saying. They said that a man carries his experience on his back. Interesting. I like so that. the less experience someone's have, and you can you could just walk around and pull the people at Overland Expo. So you see a, a Tacoma that weighs 8,000 pounds, and you ask them where they've traveled, and they will have not traveled much. Um, and it's nothing against them. It's not. It's nothing critical at all. It's just a reflection of when you don't have a lot of experience, you think you can make up for it with equipment, and that's not how life works. It's yeah. not how it works in business. It's not how it works with any sport that I'm aware of. Um, most of them require some good gear, but it requires a lot of experience, and yeah. that's what people should be spending their money and their time on. If you start off with a stock vehicle and you go get four-wheel drive training and you use the vehicle, you're going to find out what you actually need. Uh, you're going to find out for your, the place that you live in the country, you may need mud tires or you may not. But you'll find that out when you use your stock vehicle. Yeah, this is so this reminds me of, uh, we have a bicycle shop. That's what I do for a living. This awesome. is just, the podcast is just fun. <clears throat> the, awesome. um, the bicycle shop is, is what we do for, for money. Um, love and money but I've been a bicycle tourist since 1977 and one of the things that I've noticed over the years is when I run into people on the road that have just started a bicycle tour and this holds true with motorcycling too mm -hmm. that the farther they go 
the more they're mailing crap home. No doubt. Right? No doubt. Because it, yeah. it becomes most relevant when you are, your motor is your legs. <laughs> That's right. And you have to haul that crap yeah. up the hill and you start evaluating, I'm not using this stuff. Yeah. Same with, you know, motorcycle touring. The, the evolution for me has been um, big BMWs. Sure. You know, the first GS I had was an R100 GSPD, which awesome. is a great bike. Hopefully but you still have that. No, I don't, but <laughs> I did amazing. shed, I literally shed a tear when yeah. it went down the road. Yeah. Um, and then I, uh, after, like many people, after watching Ewan and Charlie yeah, sure. around the world, I got an 1150 GS Adventure. Yeah. And I did ride it off-road, but I didn't have a lot of fun riding it and things like the White Rim Trail and right. so forth because it's a beast, right? It's a hard work. And um, like, I t like I tell people, look, if you're going to get a big BMW or a Super Tenere or something, mm -hmm. you, you should ideally be a big guy with big yeah. wallets, big balls, and big experience. <laughs> That's probably uh, <laughs> true. Yeah, and, and, you know, most people that travel around the world don't use bikes like that you'll encounter a lot of 650s you'll encounter a lot of klrs yeah. um there's there's a lot more bmws at starbucks than there are in the middle of, of the silk road absolutely so, and uh, on that note i uh, after my my um, 1150 was stolen in eastern oregon while i was asleep in a motel room a few years ago i bought an i, I downsized to an 800 still too big I sold that a couple of years ago, and I've been without a motorcycle until recently. And I, I picked up once again, dropping down in size. I found a uh, Suzuki DR650 that was outfitted. Two of them by the husband, husband and wife. They traveled to Europe. I mean, they totally decked these things out. Awesome. I mean, they are set up like like my dream motorcycle and I found it on ADV Rider for Good like find. a stupid price up in Washington and just immediately rode him that night. I'll take it, I'll be up tomorrow. But uh, they they went to Eastern Europe, Africa, uh, Central America, down to Ushuaia, back to Central America. And the things like pristine, the woman, I bought the woman's bike and I had to had to change it to the you know regular yeah, height position sure, sure. and that's all i had to do but it was literally like a new bike and they put thirty-six thousand miles around the world and, on it and that's a very common around the world motorcycle yeah it's simple for a lot, of, for it's a lot just of good bone reasons. simple yeah it's yeah. something that you can repair oftentimes on your own and there's nothing wrong with with technology with 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 vehicles it's just you want them to be lower miles um in fact like even a new a brand new land rover is going to be more reliable than a 30-year-old Land Cruiser um, that may be heretical for people to consider, but it's the truth. Yeah. Um, but the Land Rover just has a very short service life. But um, you know, and most new vehicles do as well. So you don't want you don't want the brand new vehicle with 12 computers and all those sensors. That's <clears throat> at 150,000 miles. It's time to move them on. Um, whereas that old Land Cruiser, you can rebuild six times. But yeah, yeah. But new vehicles are always going to be your most reliable. And just go with something simple. There was a wonderful article by the uh, guy that went through Africa uh, in the Jeep uh, four-door JK yeah. with the Ursa, Ursa Major yeah. top, right? Dan Gregg. Yeah, Dan. And he wrote this excellent article about how people that, that felt that they had to have like an old Defender. Yeah. And they spent most of their time greasy, oil-covered yep. underneath the vehicle. Whereas he ne he had a flat tire and I think he had one other like like a battery or 
alternator belt yep. or something, and that was it. Yeah, so. newer vehicles within their service life are going to be supremely reliable. But the, what we know now, though, is after doing this for a while, is that the newer vehicles do have an expiration date. So you really don't want that that uh, LR4 at 150,000 miles. You wanted it 50,000 miles. So Yeah. That was a concern when we got our uh, sportsmobile because it's got the 7.3-liter Ford, yeah. which effectively may have like a half million miles on it. And when I bought it, it had a little over 200,000. But that's such a beautiful motor, and they don't make it anymore. I will spend whatever I need to to rebuild that sucker when time comes. But so far, the only thing that we've had go on it is the uh, is a serpentine belt. So, well, the seven three is is a rare example of something that is very much worth maintaining for the long haul because it is a million mile motor. Um, I mean, they are commonly they commonly met that number, um, and it's going to be very reliable to a half a million miles. So they're designed to do that. So the 7.3 is a rare example of something that's really worth continuing to maintain yeah. for the long haul. So I know you got to get prepared for your podcast yeah. uh, that's coming up. And we've already gone a little longer than we said that's we okay. would, so I apologize. But uh, briefly, where do you see the direction? I mean, the, the growth from the 2017 plane overland rally that yeah. we were a vendor at sure. to now is... It blew my mind when I came in here because I don't go to the, the expos very well. I haven't been to one since 2017, and I was like, oh, my God, the evolution of and the, the popularity of this has just been exponential. Yeah. Where, do you, where do you see this going? Do you see an end to this ever? Well, there will be, and that's the natural cycle of once something becomes a general consumer category, uh, which is what overlanding is now. And this is how you know that it is now a general consumer category is because the OEMs will address it. So now you see GMC is here and they have vehicles specifically meant for overlanding. Lexus has a booth here and they are starting to showcase their vehicles specifically used for overlanding. The marketing team at Lexus uses the term overlanding to describe their vehicles. So once you once a segment um, reaches that general consumer space, which is where we are now, um, we're going to have a three to five year growth run like we're seeing. I mean, this is a massive Overland Expo, but it's just one of four Overland Expos in the country. So if you think about the volume of, of commerce that's happening through these events, it's impressive. Uh, so we'll see three to five year growth cycle. And then just like mountain biking went through that you saw, you know, it went through this explosion and then it calmed down and then it, but it stayed at a very high level. Yeah. And it's not that there aren't lots of people mountain biking, because there are, but it isn't quite a, uh, fly fishing is another great example. It went through this renaissance and it, you know, became part of popular culture and, yeah. and then it calmed down and that'll be the same thing with overlanding. So we've got about a three to five year run and, and then it'll calm down at a very high level and people will continue to do it. So that's what I see. Thanks. So... If you're new to this and you're listening to us, I highly recommend you subscribe to Overland Journal. It is literally the National Geographic of overlanding magazines. The quality of the magazine, it's the hard copy itself is astounding. The, um, the ratio of advertising to editorial is what it should be and not just an advertising magazine. Um, and the content is brilliant. And uh, so uh, subscribe, and uh, if you want to get information 
uh, or you're looking for a vehicle that's used by any chance, then go to Expedition Portal because that has, has been a huge asset for, for me. Uh, when I'm doing a build or I'm looking for a vehicle or looking to sell a vehicle, it's been, uh, it's been of uh, great value. Scott, thank you so much You're for talking welcome. with us. It's a been a real honor to meet you and to have you on our podcast. Awesome. And I look forward to listening to yours today. No doubt. Well, and enjoy your rest of your event and good luck with your new podcast. I love it. Thanks, man. Awesome. So I'm here at the Red Arc booth with Jason from uh, Primal Overland, mm-hmm. who was one of my main inspirations to actually start doing my audio podcast. Uh, I followed your, your uh, YouTube channel, and uh, Donald with Soft Road in yeah. the West, you mm-hmm. guys are, uh, have done some trips together. You both do really wonderful YouTube channels. And uh, so uh, what brings you to the uh, Red Arc uh, booth here? Well, I have the full Red Arc system in my, a Red Vision system in my van. And I really love it. It's, uh, it does a great job uh, and being very versatile and charging up my Battleborn batteries. Uh, I've got the Red Arc solar blanket as well, which is, gives me a lot of versatility and making sure I'm getting the, the panel where the sun is. How many watts is that big blanket? This blanket here is 190, but actually my neighbor over here has one that's 300 watts uh, blanket. So, but it's very efficient, especially for a blanket. Like, uh, I feel like it works very well. Uh, Some, some foldable and some foldable panels are just not super efficient, but this one is it. um, I've been very impressed with it. I also like some of the features that I got with the Red Vision system as far as being able to do switching, monitoring, like my water, battery power, uh, temperatures, uh, like inside and outside the van, and some of the triggering capability to where like I can hit my brights and have all my lights come on in the front when I hit off-road, or when I'm uh, going into reverse, I can have also have my rear light pop on as soon as I hit reverse, so it makes it just really nice. Got a couple other little features set up, but the the probably the one of the biggest selling things for me too as well is that it's all an integrated system so i have one panel inside the van that i can see and do everything but i also have one single app that i can see and do everything and i'm not having to jump around and log into a bunch of different systems to do everything and before i forget it's not primal overland it's primal primal outdoor Outdoor. yeah so that's the youtube channel that you want to look for when you look for his stuff and he's got great reviews. I've got, I bought some things that he has used extensively and recommended. So I, I highly recommend his, uh, his YouTube channel. And he also drives a four-wheel drive E350 van like ours. He's got the more off-road capable version because mine has got some uh, some ass end hanging off the back because I've got the EB model, which is right. the long wheelbase. Uh-huh. But uh, you're you're less likely to catch stuff, which I've only ever done once in an arroyo, and in, in, um, I went through a really deep arroyo in Arizona. Mm-hmm. So it surprised me how capable it is, considering how much longer it is in the in the ass end. But uh, he's got his van set up really nicely and you've you've done pretty much all of the outfitting yourself right yeah a lot of the stu- interior stuff i did all myself i did have a company aj's 4x4 kind of work with the four-wheel drive and get it that done they also did some of the bar work and the bumpers um, 
Linex out of Seaside, Oregon did the Linex that covers the van and that was a great upgrade because it just protects the van uh, from the brush and the, everything rubbing against it. But yeah, all the interior work, uh, building out the inside, all the electronics setting up, uh, setting up my Red Arc system, all that I did myself. So you did all the wiring. You're more talented than I am. I, I get kind of lost with anything that's, that's too technical in terms of electronics. So uh, our system is, is already set up in the van. We got it with the uh, camper already installed. So right. That was a huge advantage. I've, I've done some little things like put, put some uh, latches, some of the uh, push button latches mm -hmm. on the drawers and the doors. The previous owner never did any of that. And I'd, go, I'd be driving in town and the, the, the drawers would come flying open. Yeah. So that's kind of a must. But uh, so where are you off to? Uh, after the Overland Expo, after what are your Expo? next adventures? Well, I think we're going to spend some time at the coast, do some surf fishing, do a little jetty fishing, kind of get out away from the heat of summer a little bit and enjoy the nice coastal breezes that we get here in Oregon. Yeah. And then after that, we're going to head up into the mountains and spend a couple months in the mountains uh, outside of like Crater Lake area. And then we're going to head into the Oahe and spend about a month there doing some more exploring and extending the Ben to Alvor trip, which is you know, an overland trip that I, I um, routed out a couple years ago. We're gonna extend it from 300 miles to 600 miles. Nice. So. There's just so much to explore over in the Oahe. Yes. But it's not a place to be in July or August or maybe yeah, even hot. early September. It's, it's just blasted over there and it gets really warm. But as soon as the, the temperature settles down, it's pretty nice. But uh, that sounds like the perfect plan for, uh, for Oregon. I have to concur that that's, uh, that's a good route. Thanks again. Thank you. So my name is Tim Notier and my, my wife and I travel around the world on a KTM 1190R. And uh, we've gone from Chicago all the way down to the tip of South America in Ushuaia and halfway up the African continent. And we are still on the road today and, and we love it. So you guys are heading to Alaska this this summer? After, we're, we're currently at the Overland Expo uh, in Bend, Oregon, and then as soon as it ends here, we're gonna be on our way up to Alaska, so. We got another uh, large jet going overhead, so I apologize for the massive amount of volume. Uh, uh, hopefully I can edit some of that out. But, uh, um, so what, what route are you, are you guys taking? Uh, we're doing, we're going up to Prudhoe, and where the, the, the Cassian seems to be one of the, the prettier routes. And there was just a washout on the... The, the Alcan, so, a beaver dam. I yep. saw that on ADV Rider. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I did the, um, the Alcan in, I think it was 06. I rode from St. Augustine, Florida, diagonally all the way up to Talkeetna. And I, I did the Alcan because I, I had to get there quick because I was meeting my wife so I basically had I did the whole thing in like a week and then I came back in five and a half days because I just wanted to get home I was sicking sick of cleaning mosquitoes off of my face shield well and we're not you know we we really like to say take the same way twice so the plan was Alcan up and Cassian down or vice versa it doesn't really matter to us but I think the the Cassian will be beautiful enough to to enjoy twice you know my my experience riding the uh, the whole way up uh, through Canada, all the way from Saskatoon, all the way to, especially into Alaska, is once you get up on the Alcan or the Cassier, 
the sense that you are a tiny speck in this immense landscape is overwhelming and the, the glaciers you come around a corner and there's a glacier and you just go fuck me you know <laughs> it looks amazing i mean i have not been to alaska yet but on our trip down to south america patagonia i can i can say that i kind of you know had a you know, a similar feeling to what you just described. Uh, Going through the Andes, I bet, oh, right? It was so tell me about, you guys have written uh, three books? Three books. The, f the first book is called Maiden Voyage, and it is uh, our maiden voyage of us trying to figure out the who, what, and how of adventure traveling. And then uh, my second book is when we actually launch ourselves into the world. It's called Too Up and Overloaded, fittingly, because we are too up and have a whole lot of gear. And then uh, the third book is Blood, Sweat, and No Tears. Again, my last name is is no tear and I'm, I'm awful with puns <laughs> excellent me too love it um, no these look like really wonderful books and when you went from Chicago to Panama did you um, so you stopped there for two up and overloaded for the for the story did you go back to do uh, below the Darien Gap uh, down to Ushuaia it was just a good break and where I could uh, end one book and start the other but it was the continuous trip it was uh, two continuous years. Uh, then we, after Ushuaia, we, we drove back up to Buenos Aires and flew the motorcycle back to Chicago and then flew it to South Africa and we got as far as Uganda and Kenya and hung out in Africa for two years. A year of it was traveling and then a year of it was waiting for the world to reopen. But uh, yeah. but now we've flown back to the States and since we're on this continent, we're, we're headed towards Alaska. Nice, nice. Well, safe travels, and uh, and thanks for taking time to talk to us. Thank you so much, my friend. I'm at the um, Backcountry Discovery Routes booth at, uh, at Butler Maps. Uh, they do the, the maps for the backcountry routes that I've done several of, and I'm here with... Timothy. And Timothy is telling me about the, the new route that's coming out here in Oregon. So Oregon's going to be our newest route. Uh, it's going to come out in January, February of next year, 2023. Um, we're really excited for it. Um, we're hoping it'll be able to connect to the Washington route, so you'll have a nice long... Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, have a nice long run up the, the West Coast, uh, maybe even all the way down to Mexico once we finish North Carolina, because that's... Or no, sorry, North California, because that's coming, that's coming also. Nice. Yeah. So similar to the, the Great Divide route, we were just talking about the mountain bike route that a lot of people call the Continental Divide route that they motorcycle from Canada to Mexico. And uh, so now you'll have an option, a border-to-border -border option. That's right, yeah. Yeah, once we have uh, the whole West Coast, then you'll be able to go from Mexico to Canada. Nice. Yeah. So when did Butler Maps start doing, what was the first route that came out? I can't remember now. So the BDR's first route was uh, Washington. That's was right. First route. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And now yeah. we're up to uh, 11 routes now. 11 routes, even some on the East Coast, I see, like uh, Mid-Atlantic uh, right. route. And, yeah, they're really expanding. And um, unlike other organizations that uh, I won't mention that do some mapped routes, the quality of their maps are perfect. I can testify how, how good they are when I had one in my AeroStitch pocket that the wind pulled out because my pocket zipper was open. And at 70 miles an hour, it went flying down the road, and it kind of exploded, but I was able to tape it back together. 
and it still worked. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, we're, we're really grateful to partner with Butler Maps. They, they do us a great service. Their maps are beautiful, and uh, yeah, we're really glad to partner with them. Yeah, the detail and the information is all stuff that you need, nothing you don't need. <laughs> and the, the, they have uh, uh, file downloads for GPS. And um, and they're just good quality. So if you're considering doing a long distance uh, overlanding trip by four-wheel drive or motorcycle trip, um, this is the first place you should really be looking. So yeah, thanks absolutely. for talking to us. You're welcome. Sure. So yeah, my name is Matthew Sturdivant, and I wrote a book called The Topography of Fear. And the book is about uh, my trip on the Transamerica Trail and I did it in 2012, and I actually had a book publisher that wanted me to do it, and I did do it, but there were several pieces of it that I was a little intimidated by, or a lot intimidated by. Um, I'd been having panic attacks for two decades, and I, I was sort of thinking that the trip would cure me of that by ripping off the Band-Aid and facing everything at once, mm -hmm. and it kind of made it worse. And, and then, uh, I had tried lots of solutions to the anxiety, but I just decided to kind of put that, put it down for a while, and then I was still having the panic attacks, even when I was doing things that weren't that scary, and um, tried a, many therapists, but then I finally did cognitive behavioral therapy, and in six sessions, totally fixed. So, um, yeah, and it's interesting because you rewire your brain and. Um, you know, I will say it doesn't mean I don't have any fear, but I am able to deal with it and sort of make peace with it now. And um, I didn't fly for 10 years, for example, and now I can get on an airplane. So that makes, you know, my life more interesting because I can do the things I've always wanted to do. Sure. And, uh, and I, my wife joined me on the second. So when I met her, she's like, we're going to go do all the scary parts. So we did the trip again so that it would be more of a complete story. And then, uh, then I felt like there, there was no unfinished business. So we went to the 13,000-foot peaks, and we went to the super remote desert canyons. And uh, now I'm not held back by things that, you know, the scary bits between my ears. Yeah, so. yeah. And motorcycles can certainly be, you know, they can be a scary way to travel. We were just talking about, you know, the difference between two-wheel riding versus four-wheel driving, you know, drive riding, that you... Uh, you don't generally worry about dying in your big cage, yeah, right? Yeah. But as a motorcyclist, I, like both my kids wanted to get their license, and they did. Yeah. And I told them, look, I'll support you in doing this, but you have to be willing to understand that and live with the idea you may die or be horribly mutilated with this. And I think that that uh, fear, if it's utilized, I'm, I'm guessing you might agree with this, that fear, if it's utilized, it instead of letting it control you, you use it as as a means of keeping your awareness honed and, and your focus. And uh, you tell them, buddy. Hey, there, there wouldn't be seven billion people walking the earth if we went and tried to tickle grizzly bears. We need fear. Yeah. Um, it keeps us from getting in trouble. I've never been in a motorcycle accident because I ride pretty cautiously. Mm. Um, so it's not all bad. But I was, you know having panic attacks on a sunny day and then you know with nothing around to hurt me yeah. so I had to um, and I've given I've done four or five podcasts and I've done um, probably the same four or five lectures uh, maybe a little bit more than that and there's always people in the audience that come up and they're like oh my god I thought I was the only one that thought this way and uh, 
it's really remarkable that there's a solution for it because I've been looking for two decades for something to help me with this. And you know, with COVID, you can if you try to find a therapist right now, good luck. They're everybody's booked up, and half of it's oh, really? anxiety. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Um, my son suffers from that. Yeah. And uh, my previous in my previous incarnation before we oh, his jets are really loud. Um, we we run a bicycle shop now. Oh, cool. We we do recumbent bikes. So I work with people that, you know, recumbents aren't necessarily they're not made specifically for people with adaptive needs or disabilities. Yeah. But if you do have a disability, they work really well for that. Um, but uh, uh, in my previous incarnation, I did audio video production, mostly conference recording. So I um, uh, had a contract with the Omega Institute of Holistic Studies in New York. For 12 years, I ran the, the whole recording department there, the Omega Tape Shop. So I got to be in a lot of workshops around the sort of thing you're talking about. Like I've been in more MBS. Do you know what MBSR is? Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction. Mm -hmm. And John Kabat-Zinn. I've been in more of John's workshops for mindfulness than any other human being, I think, because wow. we recorded all of them. So I'm familiar with what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, but um, what we were just discussing kind of reminded me of one day I walked in to a workshop that uh, a woman named Barbara Dossey uh, was giving and was I came in on the tail end to get the tapes. And she said, you know, fear is the, fear is the enemy. And when all the people left, I said, you know, Barbara, I really have to disagree with that, that fear is a natural function of our own self-preservation. And if we don't, ha it's not whether you have fear or not, it's whether you, how you utilize it. And in, in a, a similar story about, I've never had a motorcycle accident, knock, knock on wood, yeah. and I've only ever dropped a motorcycle in 52 years once, off-road, and I was in a rut, yeah. and I didn't know it was there because it was covered with moon dust. Oh, and wow. I, and I, I rode out of the rut and I didn't know. And so, you know, I think similarly, I haven't had accidents because I ride, I, I know what my limits are. I know I'm not, I'm not a, uh, you know, a Paris Dakar racer. I, 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 so I ride conservatively. And because of that, I generally don't even ride with anybody else yeah, anymore yeah. because they all want to ride so fast. I like to ride within legal limits and within my own yeah. skill limits, which are, yeah. Okay, but I, you know, I, I know when I'm getting close to the line, it's like, eh, I'm not going to go any faster than this. So. Well, yeah, the, the opening quote of my book is, says, a ship is safe in harbor, but that's not what ships are built for. Yeah. So it's well like trying said. to find a balance. Well said. Yeah, so, yeah. 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 That's for you. Oh, thank you, Matthew. Yeah. Cool. I will read it. Yeah, and then if you want to follow up with a longer uh, podcast thing or whatever, let me know. Yes, I will do that. And the name of that book, again, is Topography of Fear mm -hmm. by Matthew Sturdivant. Sturdivant. And is it available on uh, Amazon? Yes, and it's also available at thetopographyoffear.com. Topographyoffear.com. Yep. Awesome. Thank you. All right, thank you. Thanks, you guys. Hey, neighbor. My dad got to be talking, so then you want to go somewhere else? No, this would be fine. We'll just uh, do an interview right here. And uh, I'm with Monica and Gary Westcott. Gary's busy talking to the solar guy they're they're looking at uh, uh, getting new solar put on their turtle rig which in my opinion still is I know there's been an evolution of turtles and this is the 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 latest iteration but it's been you've had this now for how long uh, 22 years it's a 1999
So it's a 99 with the same 7.3 liter uh, diesel that I have in my sportsmobile Quigley van. And I still say all the traveling you've been doing, it looks like it's new. And it's still the sexiest vehicle that I've seen here. I, I, the, yeah, the, the turtle uh, rig that you guys drive is still, to, for me, uh, the gold standard. It's still the coolest rig thank you, thank I have you. ever seen, I have to say. The new Aterra from AT yeah. kind of is along the same lines, and I think that's why I like it so much. So, and it's something that somebody can buy off the shelf yeah. instead of have to, having to build it and design it like sure. you guys did. Well, and, you know, people look at this truck at SEMA or, and, and at this show here, and they go, how do you keep it so clean? I say, you wipe off the dirt with a rag. <laughs> You know, exactly. And, and yeah. people, people are asking constantly, well, is this really the same truck you drove? Where are you, where are you going next? Where, did you, where have you been? And in order to find whether a truck works or not, drive the Silk Road. Drive the tip of South America. When you come back, yeah. you'll know what works. Yeah. We started building this truck knowing that we, have, we had a Land Rover, then a Chevy, then two Fords, and we knew what kind of roads we were going to drive. Yeah. We're not four-wheelers. We're not rock crawlers. We don't want to camp in the KOA campgrounds every night. Sure. So we knew where we wanted to go, and we realized then that the kind of roads we wanted to drive over and places we wanted to see, an American pickup truck could do it. Absolutely, and yeah. And, the, and the, an American pickup is not a van. It's not, it's, not, it's not a delivery van. That's what they were really originally designed for, like a right. Volkswagen bus. Yeah. Trucks are made to work. Yep. And you make, you make a few modifications. Things like, um, you know, it's a great engine, 7.3. We've done probably 12 modifications to it without changing the engine. Okay. Better fan belt, coolant filter, better batteries. How many miles do you have on it? 208,000. Okay. So you've got uh, about 20,000 less than is on mine. I bought it two years ago with 210 or whatever. Yeah. And wow. we put about 20,000 miles on it. Never had, well, we had to replace the serpentine belt. That's about yeah, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this, is, <laughs> this has got a Gates belt that's going to last another 150,000 miles, they say. Nice. So, nice. yeah. So what little, a great little, motor, though. Little things like that. It's an amazing motor. We changed the injector. We did a high-pressure fuel pump, oil pump. We changed the fuel pump. We have two oil. We have two fuel filters, one Raycar and one in the factory, which both have preheaters. So it's when really, really cold weather, like yeah, yeah. minus 70 or minus 60, it preheats the fuel a little bit, oil, fuel, before it gets to the pump. And then, of course, that goes to the engine, and that's got its own heater and filter. Yeah, yeah. So little things like that. But basically, you can't touch the engine and make it any better. Yeah. You don't want more power. You want reliability. Oh, absolutely. That's that's, uh, that's reliability, yeah. range, and serviceability yeah. are yeah. the criteria yeah. for, for the kind of things that uh, you guys do. Sure. And what these guys have done is they've been all around the world several times. Twice. twice. And, uh, and then I want to add, it's an F550. Before F550. We have F350s, now this right. is an F550. Yeah, and yeah. We call it the Turtle 5. Right, right. Yeah, and yeah. When we were talking about the engine, too. I, I really kind of feel a little bit sorry for some of the people that are getting these new Japanese Isuzu's and the Vecos and others. They have uh -huh. four-cylinder diesel engines. If they get behind a big truck going up a long hill, yeah, get a book out and read. Right. It's kind of like, like a VW camper, and I, I've had five of them, yeah. and I always used to say it's a long way to anywhere in a VW camper. Exactly, exactly, yeah. <laughs> right? but, but with this truck, you can drop a gear down and just pass it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, my, how much does your rig weigh? Have, have you weighed it? Total weight, fully loaded, yeah. with fuel, fuel tanks and, and propane and water and everything. about around right around 14,000 pounds. And, okay. it, and, it, and it's got aftermarket springs. We don't have an overload. We have we have okay. nine loos, special comp, special springs designed by Deaver okay. to carry fourteen thousand pounds all the time. Nice, no nice. overload, nothing less. 
Yeah. So you're about 4,000 pounds more than I weighed my rig at 10,000 pounds. Okay. And it's it's a big rig. It's it's heavy. And there are a lot of places that I will back out of because I believe that uh, when you're driving a rig that big, discretion is the better part of valor. And sure, sure. So we've been in places where it starts getting really off camber or really rutted and yeah. rocky. And it's like, you know, we, we, we actually live in it uh, part-time. So mm-hmm. we, we spend four months of the winter in it. So we snowbird and we go to Southwest. Yeah. And this year we drove it all the way to Florida to do a lot of canoeing. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, yeah, you gotta, you gotta take care of your home. I'm working, I'm working on an article right now and it's called, uh, are, you, are you stuck or just temporarily detained? And when you're driving in a third world country, thousands of miles from home, you drive differently. You yeah. walk differently. Yeah. You look where you walk, where your steps are going. You, you're, you are just a little more careful because yeah. you cannot afford to get broken. Yeah. Yourself it's, or the truck. You know, I do a lot of touring by motorcycle too. Mm-hmm. I've done a lot of adventure touring. And I, I've only, knock on wood, if there's any wood around, I've only ever dropped in 52 years of motorcycling, I've ever only ever dropped a motorcycle once in dirt and oh, wow. never on pavement <laughs> uh, because I ride like my life depends on it. Right. And I hate hurting myself. You know every corner's got oil or sand. It can, yeah. You <laughs> might go around <laughs> a corner that assume you, it. <laughs> you think you could be sliding around rally style, and yeah. there might be a logging truck on the other side of oh, that yeah, curve. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's yeah. the same thing with a vehicle like this. When you're a long ways from home, you you treat it with discretion. It's and, discretion. Uh, it, yeah, and it's looking for the worst. You know, I, 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 had a, I had a Honda 750, and I would cruise down Bayshore at 75 miles an hour. If I didn't see that 2 by 4 that a truck dropped off and I hit it, oh, yeah. they would wash me off the road with a hose. Exactly. Oh, I remember my most tense situation like that. I was just coming off of there's a there's a mountain bike route, and so I was coming back. I was I was uh, at Antelope Wells mm-hmm. at the Mexican border yep. at the end of the Continental Divide ride, yep. and um, I was going through New Mexico, and there was a truck in front of me. There was a truck to the side. I was passing a truck, and the truck in front of me pulled off abruptly in front of the other truck on the right side. And there was an 18-wheeler wheel, like a like a 44-inch wheel, in the middle of the road. Uh, and had I been tailgating, yeah. I would have been dead. Yeah. Uh, as it was, I had enough time to react and avoid it. But it could have been like over the bars at 70 oh, miles yeah, an hour. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, not bueno. But well, when, you, when you're riding bike, you learn what to look for. You do not follow cement trucks. You do not follow gravel trucks, even if they're empty, because you don't know where they've been. Yeah. They will pop a rock off, and you'll hit it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, another time, and this this wasn't a close call, but I was go. I used to do a yearly trip from upstate New York, where I had a contract, down to the Blue Ridge Parkway. Yep. Front Royal. I'd ride down to Cherokee, and yeah. it was just a yearly April trip. I would just love it. But on my way down on the highway, I think I was on 95. A truck passed me with a forklift on the back, you know, hanging off the back. Yeah. And um, I, I let him go. I'm riding speed, speed limit. He was going over the speed limit. Uh, about 10 minutes later, I come upon the road, and there it is, just a just a yard sale. That that forklift had fallen off of the back of the truck. Oh. That's not something you want to hit. No, <laughs> going down the road is a freaking forklift. No. Um, but these guys have been doing this for s- such a long time along with Scott Brady and um, Overland Journal and Expedition Portal, uh, uh, you know, from his part in playing the growth of, of overlanding in general, I would have to credit you guys. You guys are the, uh, the folks that really had a lot to do with um, people becoming aware of yeah. what's out there, 
how to do it, how to set up vehicles, awesome. where to go, mm -hmm. and uh, I admire that. I think well, you, you guys have always been kind of heroes in my eyes. Well, thank Scott, Fred, you started traveling after reading after our reading our stories. And, and he, 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 he didn't know what overlanding was until he saw our truck at SEMA. Yeah, they started thinking about it, and that, that, really? that evolved. That that resulted in Overland Journal, Overland Overland. No Expo. kidding. Yeah. What a great story. Yeah, yeah. that's and Jeff, awesome. Jeff Johnson, the editor, he was editor of uh, he was he was hammering trusses, in in, in Oregon, and he, he read our stories, and he be, later became an, an editor at, at uh, Four Wheeler Magazine, right? and then tech editor at Trader Life, and he's you know he's an avid four wheeler, he, but he's a traveler. He's not. He, I think he's, he could be a four wheeler, yeah, rock climber, but he yeah, but he's never really a. Um, been a super rock crawler. He's been more he more, a more, TV more into RV. Show yeah. now, RV a TV show now, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah okay. Well, so, so. Yeah. Well, uh, you don't go looking for the most technical routes, but no. you no. you are set up to uh, know how to drive stuff. When you never know what's going to happen on a road, you yeah. know, it's you're going to have a washout, or you're going to run into a section that you just couldn't predict. How yeah. right. a lot yeah. of times you just don't know what these roads yeah. are like. They could be like uh you know almost like pavement i've ridden yeah. dirt roads that are like with no gravel that are hard pan that is like yeah. cement uh, all the way to the full spectrum of like oh crap yeah and have right? the, you have to have the sense to turn around when you know it's when you know it's not gonna get any better exactly yeah <laughs> yeah thank you so much for taking You're time welcome. to talk to us it was such an honor to meet both well, of you and you. to talk to you thanks thank you, you, take thank good you. Luck. those are some of the conversations i had with people that I have come across in writing and magazine articles online that I've been following for years. So it was really kind of cool to catch up and actually meet them in person and talk to them about and see their rigs or uh, talk to them about the books they're writing. So it's just interesting to, to look at the differences that people can have in what they aspire to and accomplish and actualize in their life about the whole spectrum, you know, of going all the way from weekend travels. Some people can't even get away for weekends, you know. And, uh, and so some people make the effort to sell all of their belongings and and get on the road and you know just like people that buy sailboats and do live aboard cruising and cruise to the South Pacific or do a circumnavigation there's a whole spectrum of from day sailing to passage making similar to overlanding where a lot of people have their regular life and they have jobs and they have families they're raising. They're not willing to take them on the road and teach them themselves, do homeschooling while they're traveling. You know, it's a matter of values and commitments. And I think we have a tendency, we all have a tendency to to really hold, put up on a pedestal people that are living on the road and or just doing a major expedition you know that's extended versus going out for the weekend and i've thought about that a lot because i've done some longer trips and i i liked being on the road for a month 
in a lot of ways. I think the longest I've ever been out was for like a month. And I still really appreciate just even just getting away locally like we did to did the the sisters trip that we did a couple episodes ago. Yes, that and, was so wonderful. And listening to you speak what I have a couple things come to my mind. One is just thinking about, like you're saying, the different ways that we adventure. And some people have incredibly rich adventures just sitting out in the darkened backyard, staring up at the stars, and traveling a million miles, and a whole world and worlds all in their inner world, just with their imagination. So I love that we humans have that capacity. Because like you said, not everybody can get away. Not everybody can afford to get away. Many people have dependents. We are in a situation now with our our little dog is, um, I'd say he's like a little old gentleman in his 90s right now and he's having a lot of breakdown, you know, as far as hearing and seeing and stiffness and if the light's wrong, he walks into things because he just can't see well enough. And so I'm doing a lot of caregiving and I've been noticing just how different this summer is for us than many other summers. And we had some early high temperatures, but after that, don't have the fires and smoke the way we have so many different summers and so we don't have that excuse. Um, yeah, the weather, you know, it's just easy to hide in the air-conditioned house when it's really hot out. <laughs> we haven't done anything for a while because it's like, yeah, we don't have the excuse of smoke, but we have the excuse of the, the heat. And at least in a four-wheel vehicle like our, our van, it's easier to be comfortable when we're traveling, because at least when you're driving, you have air conditioning. Um, I've done some, you know, quick overnight trips on the motorcycle, uh, and it's been hot, and it's not as much fun <laughs> on the motorcycle. But you're really, exp- you know, it's that's another part of the whole picture is when you're living a lifestyle, you're on a major expedition, or you're living in your vehicle traveling. You're out there, and there's no just going home to the air conditioning. I suppose, you know, if you have enough money, you can, and there, you have the ability to go to a uh, some sort of hotel or some sort of lodging, wherever you are around the world, if there's anything available, you can go there and kind of hole up if you really get miserable. But I guess that's that's kind of part of the definition of adventure, is you expose yourself to that. Yeah. And that can be a really satisfying part because you're you're opening yourself wide open to whatever this bigger world throws at you. Mm-hmm. And it, instead of just taking the easy road, you you uh, you know you you live through it. You stretch beyond your comfort zone. Yeah. I mean, you and I just re-watched, well, we watched for the first time 
Long Way Up, Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman's third round, but we rewatched the first two epic journeys and... Up, down, and around. <sighs> Up, down, and round. And they're just so fantastic. My God. I mean, you could live, you can really live through watching those shows and... The guys are addictive, aren't they? They, I felt that they were. I I just find the guys, the whole crew, eminently likable. And um, it's on Apple, by the way, (laughs) if you haven't seen it. They're fantastic. And I just felt each one sort of reverberating in my cells afterwards and did feel this sense of loss. And I've been asking myself, Am I envious? Do I want to do that? Do I want to be, do I want to push myself that much? Can I imagine being on the motorcycle, say, every day for a hundred days straight, the way they they did in, what was it, long way round? Yeah. Or it was a hundred, whatever, how many days? And I don't think I, I do, per se, but one of the things I remember... Um, I can't remember who said it and they each said part of it but it was something about how much they loved being on the adventure and how little of was required of them how much they just and you have a great saying uh, about that they just would get up and pack up and ride and stop figure out where they were going to spend the night and eat their dinner and go to bed and eat sleep repeat how does that go yeah that was my old arrow stitch t-shirt that i loved that i wore out uh ride eat sleep repeat there we go i left yeah. off the ride yeah the other one, my other favorite was a bmw shirt that said what day is this and why am i in alaska <laughs> Well, watching that that series, you know, it made me think about, once again, about ways to travel, like the way they were traveling. They, I mean, Ewan's a huge movie star, and he has commitments to, uh, I'm sure it cost him a significant amount of money if he had movies he could have starred in, and he's like, I'm going to take a third of a year and ride around the world. And you got to admire somebody that's, uh, famous and wealthy and uh, well-known and as a celebrity taking that kind of a risk and taking that kind of time. And yeah, they got to combine it with, you know, the, uh, on top of the whole thing, they were sponsored by BMW and they had a whole crew behind them. Um, but that, that part of it's pretty, I admire that. That's kind of cool. Um, and the way that they did it, was very structured and they had a schedule so i think that you know there's some people that have a schedule that they're like well i gotta get back to you know just like well i can leave on friday afternoon but i have to be back sunday night to get to work he had to they left in you know x x day and month and then they had to be back to work in 100 days so they had to cram everything in and that's that's really stressful, I think, compared to having an open-ended schedule where there's no expiration date. 
or destination that you have to get to by a certain time, that kind of compresses things down so that you're not able to live it as a lifestyle. You're living it as an expedition, you know, like climbing Mount Everest or, um, you know, Denali or whatever. You're just like, well, we've got to get this done before the snows start or whatever. You know, we have to get to to South Call and set up camp and then we have to release supplies by this amount of time. So it's more structured. So it's a difference between, and I think you could almost say it's a difference between an expedition and a lifestyle, Mm. you know, where you're just living on the road, you know, like people that live aboard a sailboat versus I'm going to race the Transpac race. You know, I'm going to sail from San Francisco Bay to Hawaii. And then, you know, you've got to do it within while you're racing. So you go as, as fast as you can, but then you get home. Hopefully you don't have to sail home. By the way, the other day, and this is completely off topic of overlanding because I'm, I'm lately I'm into sailing. But um, if you go, if you want to sail from Seattle to, to San Diego or to Southern California, or to Baja for that matter, the fastest way home is to sail to Hawaii first. Because of the current. Because of current and wind. Yeah. If you if you want to sail north up the coast, and I know this from my uh, bicycle touring experience, that the prevailing winds always blow along the the Pacific coast from north to south. This is anyways in the summer, and in the winter it can get really kind of wild. But I remember several times that I've been riding the coast road by by. Uh, well, by bicycle by, and also by motorcycle, and I see some poor schmuck grinding with a full touring load on his bicycle uh, uh, south to north, and I'm like, dude, why? what's wrong? What's wrong with you? <laughs> why? As they would say in India, what's wrong with you? Hey, buddy, you're going the wrong way. So, yeah. But I, I think my thoughts watching Long Way Around and talking to the folks, having the conversations I did with the Westcots and Scott Brady and the motorcycle dudes um, was that, you know, just be grateful for, for every moment you spend on the road, regardless of it's a, whether it's a weekend or you get to go out for months or years. Just appreciate what you have got and what you're doing. Kind of be be here now. I give credit to Ramdas for that. <laughs> Don't be there then. Be be there now. <laughs> be here now. <laughs> be here now when you're doing it and appreciate and feel gratitude for every moment you're having the adventure, regardless of how big or how small it is. And you don't know what it'll turn into, you know. That's the deeper appreciation of it, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Something that occurs to me about adventuring is something that you and I kind of dance with ongoingly is you tend to channel more of what we call masculine energy and I tend to channel more of the feminine and 
maybe because you are the primary sort of energy behind our adventuring, we tend to adventure in your style. But I think what we are each realizing with time, and this is our 19th, sorry, this is will be our 19th, 19th year together shortly, um, you are noticing that when you slow down to match my pace, you experience more value, or perhaps we should say a different sort of value. And I am also noticing that I don't enjoy the big goal-oriented push to do, to get to a place, to do a thing, to drive across the country as fast as we can. And and so we're we're in that exploration together as a couple to find the best balance so that we can do things like drive from Oregon to Florida and maybe rather than four or five days, maybe we'll take 10 days or even two weeks because we'll stop here and see friends or family and we'll stop there and visit that very special national park that happens to be en route and so on. So I think we are both actually needing to cultivate more of the be here now, release some of the goal-orientedness. But I wanted to say this about the, the schedule that the guys had to do in those adventures. And I would love to ask them how they felt having to be on this tight schedule because part of the fun of the shows is they do stop periodically and get off their bikes and go out whale watching like when they were in Alaska or different things like that. They said several times that they were, you know, really sorry that they had to rush through, that they wanted to stop, they wanted to do something, they wanted to spend more time with with folks that they were meeting and they weren't able to do that because they had to stick to the schedule and they ended up showing up like right on schedule. They, they kept it to the schedule. They did it. Um, I suppose uh, on a separate tack with that, if you spend too much time lollygagging or however you want to put it, doing whatever you feel like in a given day, uh, you can also lose that that impetus, that forward momentum that helps you to accomplish things. So I could see both the, the challenge of their tight schedules, and I know they really enjoyed the time off that they had, which was seldom lying around time off. It was usually more adventuring of sorts. It just wasn't usually on the bikes you're saying you you might you run the risk of losing your drive and ending up on the beach (laughs) barefoot drinking margarita after margarita listening to old jimmy buffett songs is that what i would not go that far never (laughs) but i'm saying god they might have been calling their wives to say honey do you think you and the kids would would enjoy moving to Mongolia or <laughs> wherever it was, some some beautiful beach in in, in South Africa. Or Come something. for the scenery, stay for the sheep balls. 
rough. Yeah, if you've never seen it, they they go into a yurt in Mongolia uh, with a family that's hosting them, and they're 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 cooking. They've got this kettle of goat, sheep, and cow balls. They've neutered. Yeah, they yeah. Yeah. And it's a big feast for the family and probably yeah. visiting friends and so on. Yeah, the yeah, the Mongolian style uh, uh Rocky Mountain oysters. Yeah. And uh it, yeah, it it was There were some smirks on the family. It was revolting. pretty funny. <laughs> It was horrible. It was revolting. It just looked it looked so nauseating. Oh, but no. uh it was a good um, stew. I wanted to back up just a little bit before we wrap up here cuz uh, we're going a little bit long, but uh, you were uh, about being uh, present with the journey and grateful for your time being out, regardless of what it is. But I think what Ringe was talking about was also brings into consideration to be present with the other person you're traveling with, unless you're traveling solo. If you're traveling solo, solo be present with what you're needing and wanting Um and if you're with your spouse, it's common. It's kind of a common stereotypical guy thing to be very goal oriented. I know I get, I like to drive. I love to drive. It's just like keep hammering. Let's go. When we were doing our motorcycle uh, adventure touring together, it was, you know, just riding, riding, riding. Let's go. Always oh, stop. We'll stop and have something to eat and let's go. Right. But I don't um, think I ever messed with one of your plans back then i was so green i was just like yeah you know better now so if you want (laughs) i'm older if you if you do tap into the more feminine need to stop more often and so pictures can be taken and views can be can be taken in and and walks can be had if you do that you may find that uh, you're moving at a slower pace and you're seeing more and you're you actually end up being more in tune with what's going on. I I loved riding with her because I would ride slower. It holds true when we're mountain biking too. I I uh, I appreciate going slower because then you can see more. You know, if you try and race through everything, it's over too quick and you don't see as much. Mm-hmm. I guess that's kind of the what I want to wrap this up with. Unless you have anything more you want to say, I I just really encourage listeners if you are traveling to slow down more and take it in as uh as our dog wiley say says you know you got to take time to stop and smell the poop (laughs) i don't know if he says that but he just does that that's him being true no he's communicated that telepathically (laughs) for us it's roses for him it's poop so doggy bulletin boards that's yeah. right so thank you for joining us in another episode of wheel adventures